Welcome to the New Books Network. This is the Nordic Asia Podcast. Welcome to Nordic Asia Podcast, a collaboration sharing expertise on Asia across the Nordic region. My name is Julie Yuwen Chen, Professor of Chinese Studies at University of Helsinki, Finland. Join me today to talk about the implication of the Russian-Ukrainian war on Taiwan's relationship with China is Sean King. Sean is Senior Vice President at Par Strategies, a New York business advisory firm that has undertaken research and analysis on Taiwan. He is also an affiliated scholar at the University of Notre Dame, Liu Institute for Asia and Asian Studies. So first of all, welcome, Sean. Great to be with you, Julie, and great to see you again after meeting you in Helsinki last month. The reason I invite you for a discussion in North Asia podcast is I noticed in addition to your work in the advisory firm, you also have worked for the U.S. Department of Commerce, that you have diverse experience working both in the government sector and in the business sector, right? Right, yeah. Let me explain a bit about the contact is the war between Russia and Ukraine. It is really reverberating in Taiwan. So people are watching. I mean, people in Taiwan are really watching intently how Ukraine defend itself against a really much larger and powerful adversary. And they are thinking, well, how much it will take to really gather or galvanize international support. And there has been a lot of warnings and speculations, particularly when the war happened. Like now, if the United States or the West are busy with Ukraine, will that leave an opportunity for China to militarily attack Taiwan? Well, and the war hasn't ended until now. And I think there's also a lot of discussions in the United States. I would like to kind of understand your take about this. To begin with, could you tell us a bit about yourself or your firm and your interest in the Taiwan issue. Sure. So I'm 52 years old. I grew up in Long Island. I live in Manhattan. In my mid-20s, I got sent on a trade mission to Taiwan for the New York State Department of Economic Development. And this kind of opened my eyes to Asia, Taiwan in particular. And this was right before the Asian financial crisis. Then I went to grad school. In grad school, I did a summer internship for Citibank in Taiwan in 1998 and then went to work for Citibank in PwC in Singapore after graduation. Then I spent five years at Commerce where I was senior advisor for Asia in the US and foreign commercial service. And then since 2006, I've been at Park Strategies, which as you said, is a business advisory firm managed by former Senator Alphonse D'Amato of New York. Uh, We represented Taiwan's Ministry of Foreign Affairs from 2009 to 2012, and we had an office in Taipei from 2010 to 2016. And in my quasi-academic research role, I follow U.S.-Asia relations in general, Korea and Taiwan in particular, and I'm very interested in Taiwan's evolution since 1949, in particular the ROC Constitution, Taipei's claims, why, for instance, it left the UN before it could be kicked out, why it turned down the opportunity to compete as Taiwan at the Montreal 1976 Olympics. These things of kind of national or quasi-national identity as it regards Taiwan and the Republic of China interest me greatly. And as you know, I have my own long ago Nordic history when I was a high school exchange student in Sweden 35 years ago, which first got me to travel and uh, out and see the world. So great to be with you today. And thank you again. 
So that's why you speak fluent Swedish. <laughs> I have to emphasize it's a unique talent. <laughs> All right. Well, so let us just jump into the hot debate now. And I think by now it's almost a cliche, but you still read it in the newspaper that Pang dislike to compare Taiwan and Ukraine. But what do you think? In what aspect do you think these two cases are comparable? In what aspects they are very different? I see much more difference than similarity. And yes, I mean, especially here in the United States, when Russia first attacked Ukraine, listening to American talk radio, which tends to lean Republican and bash Joe Biden at every turn, they even suggested somehow that Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin were coordinating strikes on Taiwan and Ukraine, that while Putin goes for Ukraine and distracts us one day, as if the United States has never fought a two-front war. Remember, we were in Vietnam and we had the Cold War. We had Iraq, we had Afghanistan. You know, we can walk and chew gum at the same time. But listening to people bash Biden here, they were suggesting while Putin moves on Ukraine, she's going to take that as a signal and move on Taiwan. I guess the big similarity is that Ukraine and Taiwan are both threatened by neighboring autocracies that are much bigger than they are. But otherwise, I see the differences as far greater. For one thing, Ukraine, and I'm going to show my cultural openness by speaking in kilometers here. Ukraine has a 1,200-mile land border with Russia that was largely unguarded. Meanwhile, Taiwan is separated by 160 kilometers across the Taiwan Strait, which was very rough and difficult to cross. As I heard on our recent Carnegie Endowment for Peace podcast, the last successful amphibious landing in wartime was the Incheon landing in 1950 that the U.S. did against North Korea. Ukraine was also part of the Soviet Union from 1922 to 1991. That means there are Russian officers alive today who served in Ukraine and know its territory and know its streets and know its people. And still, they're having a lot of trouble. Taiwan has never been under the control of the PRC, and the PLA has never even set foot on Taiwan. Russia has a lot of recent war experience, not just Afghanistan in the dying days of the Soviet Union, but also Chechnya, South Ossetia, Crimea, most recently in 2014. PLA has not fought a war of any kind since 1979 when it fought Vietnam. Crucial difference not in Taiwan's favor is I'm not that familiar with Russian history, but I, while Russians see Ukraine as important to the Russian story, they don't necessarily see it as part of Russia per se. But the Chinese Communist Party, in contrast, sees Taiwan as inherently Chinese. They see this as a sacred mission. Were they ever to move on Taiwan, they would never stop. There'd be no halfway. You know, we talk about maybe Putin settling for the Donbass region and reaching some kind of agreement in eastern Ukraine. For the CCP, it would be all or nothing with Taiwan. Again, so this is a sacred mission, and they see Taiwan as Chinese in a way that Russia does not see Ukraine as Russian. Also, Ukraine has internationally recognized sovereignty. It's in the United Nations. Beijing itself recognizes Ukraine and even has Belt and Road Initiative projects in Ukraine. It's been very galvanizing and inspiring to see Europe and the rest of the world stand up to Russia over Ukraine, but their economy is much less intertwined and dependent on Russia, except maybe for energy. Would the world stand up to the PRC the way it has to Russia over Taiwan when they would have much more to lose economically? I'm not sure. Hopefully we don't get to that point and it's not necessary, but I see the differences between the two is many more than the similarities.
There has been several episodes in our Nordic Asia podcast that discuss different Asian countries' reaction to the war. And I recall in one of the episodes, I know Martin Puranen, and he was interviewed. He's from the Finnish National Defense University. He expressed the view what the war has told China is that it is quite difficult to invade a modern country like Ukraine. Martin was indicating that China will learn the lesson and uh, understand it's not that easy to attack uh, Taiwan. Despite Marty's view, I still hear a lot of speculations from observers that China might still have the idea. Uh, how is the war in Ukraine affect China's policy towards Taiwan? Well, I listened to the podcast that you mentioned. In fact, I'm a fan of the Nordic Asia podcast in general. Happy to be a part of it today. Beijing rightly sees itself as a rising or re-emerging power. And Russia, I'm sure they think this privately as a dying power. It is not going to be pushed or rushed into any action on Taiwan based on something that Vladimir Putin does. But they're certainly learning from Putin's mistakes, learning on his dime and learning on his time. And again, I mentioned the Carnegie Endowment for Peace. They did a great podcast the other day, Zoom, hosted by Evan Feigenbaum, where a lot of military experts got together and talked about certain things that Russia's done wrong from which the PLA could learn. Because remember, the PLA pretty much only trains with Russian and Pakistani forces. And certainly a lot of their armaments in the early days came from Russia. So they may be kind of disheartened by all of Russia's mistakes when they work so closely together. As Bonnie Lin at the CSIS China Power Project has said, The first thing Beijing will do will be try to win the information battle, cut off Taiwan's communications with the outside world, certainly try to decapitate the leadership. They can't afford to have a Taiwanese Vladimir Zelensky speaking to the world and garnering sympathy and having uh, virtual discussions with parliaments all around the world. Also, they're going to want to cut off supply lines, so-called A2AD. We've been able to supply Ukraine with weapons. They would want to cut off Taiwan from the East Coast to make sure that we can't send reinforcements from, say, Commonwealth of Northern Marianas Islands, Guam, or Hawaii. That's why it was such a loss for Taiwan and the United States when Solomon Islands and Kiribati in 2019 switched diplomatic recognition from Taipei to Beijing, and why it's essential that we resolve this thing with the compacts of free association with the Marshall Islands, Palau, and the Federated States of Micronesia, because the Western Pacific is the next battleground for influence between the United States and the PRC. And it's essential that we keep these supply lines open to Taiwan in case of crisis. I also think that Beijing's learned the lesson that if they're going to go for Taiwan, they got to go all out at first. It's going to be very hard, very fast. None of this piecemeal stuff that Russia's tried and failed at. So it's going to be all out. They're going to want to block and cut off any connection from the outside world to Taiwan and learn the lessons from what's happening in Ukraine and Russia. So I don't see Xi Jinping being pushed by Putin, but certainly he's going to learn where Putin's failed and not make the same mistakes should he move on Taiwan, which I really don't think he will anytime soon. So long as the United States is committed to the region, I think the PLA will be very careful about moving on Taiwan. That's why when Biden came into office, I thought it was really important that he extended for five years each U.S. troop presence in South Korea and Japan, saying that the United States is committed to the region. And also we've doubled the number of U.S. forces on Taiwan for training purposes and kept going the weapon sales and more regularized them to Taiwan. So, so long as the United States is committed to the region, but not Taiwan specifically, she would have to think really carefully about any kind of war that he might well lose with a fellow nuclear power. So I'm not that concerned about war on the Taiwan Strait right now.
that you say USA is committed to the region, just in a very unlikely scenario, hopefully doesn't happen, is that there is a military attack on China. Do you think the US will come to Taiwan's aid? Well, I think that, but we would see it coming because of all the troop, troops being amassed in Fujian province across the strait. I mean, I think Beijing would go all out, but we'd obviously have some sense that it's going to happen. People talk about strategic clarity, a so-called guarantee for Taiwan that the United States will defend it. But how can you promise to guarantee an island whose government you don't even officially recognize? Because when we terminated diplomatic relations with Taipei in 1979, it also meant ending the U.S. Sino Mutual Defense Treaty. But so long as Taipei did not provoke any kind of spat with the mainland, I do think the United States would defend Taiwan in case of PRC attack. If you look at the first island chain on a map of Asia, Taiwan is a key part of that. It helps hem in the PRC from the Pacific Ocean. Plus, it is a self-starter democracy. This isn't a democracy. We talk a lot about democracy, but this wasn't some democracy that was imposed from the outside or from war. This was started from within. This is a true civil society. So given its geographic position and its politics at home, and it's our ninth largest trading partner, and the Economist recently ranked it eighth on the World Democracy Index. You know, if we didn't defend Taiwan in case of unprovoked attack, then what are we doing? Why are we here? I just couldn't see us not do it so long as Taipei did not start the fight. Talking about Taiwan provoking China, I think recently uh, there's another hot debate and it's ongoing is Nancy Pelosi's visit to Taiwan. Whether this will happen or not is still quite unclear to me. I am surprised how much attention this issue is getting. I was just some young punk working on Capitol Hill. Actually, I guess this was my first year of grad school or maybe I was still in New York when Newt Gingrich, the former Republican Speaker of the House, went to Taiwan in 1997. I didn't really consider it that big of a deal. Usually, so long as it's just legislators to go to Taiwan, it's not an issue. You just get the perfunctory protests from the mainland. So I don't see this as a game changer. I don't, I don't understand what the big deal is. And Nancy Pelosi herself has a good record on related issues. I would have thought when the Secretary of Health and Human Services, Azar, under Trump, went to Taiwan as a cabinet secretary two years ago, that would have been a much bigger deal. I mean, a, a cabinet secretary going is much bigger, as far as I'm concerned, than the Speaker of the House. Maybe because Beijing is not a democracy, they don't understand that the president cannot stop a Speaker of the House from traveling abroad. These are co-equal branches of government. I mean, that's the whole thing of the Constitution with the separation of powers between the executive, legislative, and judicial branches. He cannot tell Nancy Pelosi not to go. And it shows the bipartisan support of Taiwan that Mike Pompeo, Trump's former Secretary of State, has somewhat cheekily offered to meet Nancy Pelosi on Taiwan were she to go. Often congressional delegations travel together, Republicans and Democrats. You know, there's something for everyone in this issue. It's, it's very, it's easy to oppose the PRC and support Taiwan, no matter your party, because if you're a Republican, you can emphasize religious freedom and opposition to so-called communism. If you're a Democrat, you can talk about human rights, environmental, different progressive issues that are very popular on Taiwan. So again, there's something for everyone. Listen, it's not for me to say whether or not Nancy Pelosi should go. That's between her and the government of Taiwan. But if she does go, I'll support her. And I don't think anybody should complain about it. And if she does, I don't actually think Beijing will do anything. I think there's more bark than bite here. But again, it's up to her in Taiwan if she goes. But if she does go, I'll support her strongly. On this matter, I really see Taiwan not as the provoker 
And I don't know why you think, I think Pelosi is basically playing some kind of game for the upcoming American midterm. I don't think most Americans, I mean, Americans are, if they think about Taiwan, they're sympathetic, but this is not going to change anyone's vote in the midterms. People in the midterms are going to vote on gasoline prices, inflation, their views of Joe Biden. The midterm elections are always a referendum on the new president. It happened in 1994 against Clinton and against Bush in 2006, which was outrage over Iraq. And then 2010, Obama lost Congress. The Democrats lost Congress when people are upset about Obama's health care plan. It's always a referendum on the new president. It has almost nothing to do with foreign policy or where Nancy Pelosi is going to go. You know, she's probably not going to be speaker this time next year. Republicans are all but certain to take over the House. Biden, whatever concerns he has over the trip, I don't want to criticize a U.S. president to a foreign audience, but he should keep these disagreements in-house. We shouldn't be letting the world know what the U.S. military is worried about, and he shouldn't be arguing with the speaker. He can convey that to her privately, but he should be standing behind the speaker on the world stage. And next year, if a Republican speaker wants to go and he still opposes that speaker's trip, then it's going to look like a partisan battle. This is a chance to support a fellow Democrat and her going to visit another democracy. Nancy Pelosi, going back to her visit to Tiananmen Square in 1991, where she unfurled the banner in protest and has gone to India to pray with the Dalai Lama. She's very consistent on these issues. So I don't see her doing this for politics. She was supposed to go in April yeah. and she got sick. So I don't think any overseas trip by a member of Congress in April would influence the November election. So to me, I take her at face value here. I think this is her belief and we should support her if she goes. All right. Well, go back to the issue of Ukraine again. We see that Ukrainian citizens were really resistant. And the question would be then, how do Taiwan government and its citizens also prevent a military attack from China and how to resist? Yeah, well, I'm naturally hesitant to weigh in on this because I don't want to sound like some armchair cowboy from abroad, you know, talking tough and telling other people what they should do. But someone like former Secretary of Defense Esper, who just returned from Taiwan, I listened to his speech the other day. From his point of view, he offered some thoughts where he said that he thinks Taiwan should increase its defense budget, also increase, lengthen and strengthen its conscription, revitalize its reserves, buy weapons, but make sure it's buying the right weapons. And that also is incumbent upon the United States to work with Taiwan to sort of guide them where we think the best weapons will be available based on the Ukraine experience. And also make sure that Taiwan stockpiles enough food, fuel, energy has a robust telecom structure that can withstand uh, Beijing's attack, information warfare and cut off Taiwan. And on the civilian level, you're right. The Ukrainian people have been very inspiring. And I've seen that there's been an uptick in Taiwan in terms of first aid training, survival. But, you know, Taiwanese are good at survival anyway because of their history with earthquakes. And it's not like this PRC threat is new. Remember, Taiwanese have been living with this for 70 years. And that's why a lot of people, they read the latest thing about what China is doing in the news, and they think that everybody in Taiwan should be panicked. But this is somewhat accustomed, maybe sort of like subway crime in New York or the threat of terrorism in Israel. It's just something you learn to live with. So Taiwanese have always had these things on their mind. But I do notice an uptick in, say, civil defense training and first aid training. Whether or not Taiwanese should train with guns or arms, I don't know, because, you know, guns are a very sensitive issue on Taiwan. And again, when it comes to the military, we outside think the military is good for Taiwan's interests. But internally within Taiwan, the military is often associated with the martial law era, 
white terror, lack of democracy. The Taiwan debate is as much about privilege and class and ethnicity within Taiwan as it is about relations across the strait. And I think we foreigners sometimes forget that. While we associate the, uh, the military with Taiwan's defense, it also reminds a lot of people of darker days at home. You know, I don't want to tell Taiwanese too much what to do, and I leave a lot of these things to the military experts, but some of the things I just mentioned enlisted are the things I think that Taiwanese should take into consideration and talk to people who know something more about this than I do. We know that the United States have allies with Japan and South Korea. So what do you think Japan and South Korea will come to help in case of a military attack from China to Taiwan? That sounds like a lot of the think tank seminars I attend here in New York on <laughs> Japan-Korea relations. Abe Shinzo, the recently assassinated former Japanese leader, you know, tried to modernize Japanese, Japan's constitution and the role of its self-defense forces. Japanese are very pro-Taiwan, as Taiwanese tend to be very pro-Japan. But still, I cannot imagine a scenario today or anytime soon where the Japanese self-defense forces would actually involve themselves in a war on Taiwan. I still think that's a bridge too far for Japan, both at home and in the region, unless the PLA attack U.S. bases on Japan in the case of a Taiwan contingency. Then I think all bets are off and Japan might involve itself. But what I could see Japan doing is playing a key logistics support role for U.S. forces in Japan, of which there are 50,000, which would be Taiwan's first line of defense. Because until the cavalry comes from, say, Guam, and I spent two months, eight years ago on Saipan in the Commonwealth of Northern Mariana Islands. And I remember as I was in line skating every day on Beach Road past the Hard Rock Cafe at the casino, seeing these massive U.S. tanker ships docked every day unmarked. And somebody told me those are all full of guns and armaments, tanks and everything else. It's a head start on sending stuff from Hawaii should anything break out in the Taiwan Strait, Korea, or wherever. Until that stuff gets there or other troops, Okinawa is going to be the first line of defense for Taiwan. And I could see Japan's SDF playing a very strong support logistics role in Japan for U.S. troops coming back and forth from Taiwan. I think Japan would also be expected to take in Taiwanese refugees if things get that bad. So I see Japan as being a very supportive, active role. And remember, they have an Indo-Pacific outlook and they have their own China challenge. And they're very concerned about the Senkaku Islands, which very inconveniently Beijing claims on the basis that they belong to Taiwan. And they say because Taiwan is part of China, that means the Senkakus are ours by default. And Taipei awkwardly claims the islands too, but doesn't really push the claim, especially not since the fisheries agreement it struck under the Ma Ying-jeou administration in 2013. And most Taiwanese I know don't really care about the Senkaku Islands. But were the PRC to seize Taiwan, Japan knows rightly that that would be used as a staging ground to take the Senkaku Islands at some point, which President Obama, being the first sitting U.S. president to do so, made clear in 2014 that those islands fall under Article 5 of the U.S.-Japan Mutual Defense Treaty. So we don't take a position on ownership, but we acknowledge, we recognize Japanese administration and say that they do fall under the U.S.-Japan Defense Treaty. So I think Japan would take an active role, but not be on Taiwan itself. Korea tends to focus on Korean issues. They also feel probably wrongly that they still need Beijing's help on North Korea. And they have a historical hatred of Japan and wouldn't want to be involved in something that Japan's involved with. And Korea-Taiwan relations have not been great over the years. Chiang Kai-shek meddled in the Korean War for his own purposes when Seoul very abruptly established diplomatic relations with Beijing in 1992 as a payback for getting into the 
UN in 91, no Korean airliners were allowed to land on Taiwan for 12 years. And it went both ways. So on my first flight between Seoul and Taipei, I had to fly Cathay Pacific in 1998. And that was a leftover diplomatic spat for how Seoul recognized Beijing. Now, things are a little better under Yoon Suk-yul, the current new South Korean conservative president who has his own domestic political problems at home, mostly of his own making, but he is taking a more Indo-Pacific outlook. May not join the Quad outright, but will at least be associated with it. But still, I think that's too much of a regional outlook for Korea to take to get involved in Taiwan in any way. And we have far fewer troops in South Korea, 28,500. Were we to divert any of those troops to Taiwan, that could leave it exposed and vulnerable to a second North Korean attack, which has already happened once, is why the troops are there in the first place. So this is a long-winded way of saying I think Japan would play an active supporting role in any Taiwan contingency. Korea would pay lip service and maybe send humanitarian supplies, but basically prefer to sit it out. That's how I see things. Thank you very much, Sean, for sharing your insight with us. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast with me. I'm Julie Yuen Chen, and Sean King is a senior vice president of Par Strategies, a New York business advisory firm which has undertaken research and analysis on Taiwan. You have been listening to the Nordic Asia podcast.